Hello, everyone, and welcome to the False Nines. This is the 72nd episode of a bi-weekly footballing discussion. I am your host, Zach Fensack, alongside my friend, Adam Goffin. Adam, of all the uh, the, of all the artificial um, guzzling noises that you and I have made throughout our podcast, I think that was I think that was my favorite one. That one sounded so cartoonish. <laughs> it was it was deliberately kind of corny. It, I'm drinking water here, so um, yeah, not 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 very happy right now, Zach. So um, I appreciate your enthusiasm for our intro today, but footy, I'm pissed off, Zach. Footy. Oh, okay, that's good. I'm glad you're you're leaving this somewhat vague. Um, and we can we can dive into that. Uh, so we are actually recording this pod, the again the seventy second episode of the False Nines. We're recording just hours after the uh, Euro 2020, 2020.5. Uh, the Euro twenty twenty point five final between England and Italy happened just this afternoon. So I wanted to get as as much of a kind of a live reaction from from you as I could, Adam, as you are you know as close to a uh, a native English fan, as as I know here in the states, um, so excited to to hear what you have to say. Although I I, I know that you're may, maybe not necessarily excited to to have the discussion, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And I've been trying really hard not to go off on one, so that when I do for the first time, it'll be authentic. Anyone? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not rehashed. There have been little moments I, where I've been. You've said something, and it's like triggered me, and I'm like. I'm trying really hard to keep it in until we talk about the finals act. Yeah, it's like activating a sleeper cell. I, there are just certain words that I'll say that will that will you'll see red for a couple of seconds, and then you'll you'll black back in and not know what you did in, in that span of a few seconds. If I you know if I say late game substitutes or Jaden Sancho or something of the sort, we don't know what's going to happen. Or Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> so Manchester United in general. Hey man, Harry Maguire had probably the best penalty in that in that shootout. So shock, not, shock, no. shocker, huh? That was like okay, yeah. I mean, why is he taking a penalty? Never mind. Let's wait. Let's get to yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, so 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 that yeah, before we just completely devolve into chaos, um uh with uh, our last pod coming at the end of the round of 16, um it kind of placed perfectly for us to to split up our Euro commentary into two episodes. So this episode um, going over the latter half of the tournament, quarters, semis, and the final from today, uh, as well as awards that uh, we have, I have come up with um, for us to get over. So um, the Golden Boot, and you know, certain awards have already been given out, but we'll we'll be given a, a bit more subjective ones. So uh, yeah, before we jump into that, I guess um, always a good reminder: if you like our podcast, or if you just enjoy hearing two men talk about football um you can like and subscribe we are the false nines all the episodes with that beautiful logo uh of the rocky mountains and a uh a soccer ball we are found on coming home newcastle wherever you listen to your podcasts uh, as well as chn underscore podcast on twitter and coming home newcastle on facebook so that is all of our details anything else you want to add adam before we jump in euro trivia do you got a euro trivia for us this time i, I wasn't sure if you had time to, to generate one in, in the kind of blind rage that you must have been in this afternoon. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't a blind rage. And the theme of my Euro trivia for this week is actually blind rage as well. In the sense Ooh. that the question for you today, Zach, is who was the first player to receive a straight red card in Euro 2020? 
Okay. All right. Very fun. I, I, okay, cool. I do not know off the top of my head. Um, right. I want to say Alexander Mitrovic, but I know he did not participate this year, so it's going to be tough for me. Serbia were not in the Euros. You're absolutely correct. It was not Mitra. Okay. All right, good. So we'll we'll get a clue before our commercial break and then one more before the end of the podcast. As per usual, um, without any further ado, let's jump into the quarterfinals that took place just one week ago. Two matches on Friday, July 2nd, two on Saturday, July 3rd. Um, and we were really treated to, you know, some some heart pounding entertainment right from the off. First match, Spain, Switzerland, uh, a match where Switzerland coming off their miraculous victory over France in again, penalty shootouts in the round of 16. Um, and we saw a similar game here, uh, a game that went 120 minutes despite Switzerland picking up a red card and having to uh, fight off Spain with 10 men. Going to penalties, and unfortunately in this one, Switzerland unable to keep the Cinderella story going. Spain coming out victorious. Um, I'd say in terms of 1-1 matches, Adam, this was a quite gripping one and uh, a bit of a foreshadowing to another 1-1 match going to penalties that we'll talk about in a bit. But anything that really stuck out to you in the Spain-Switzerland match? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this this was an interesting game. It wasn't quite the spectacle that France versus Switzerland was, you know, with the 3-3 draw and seeing that one kind of play out and go to penalties as well. I think what what was most notable for me is Switzerland kind of came into this being like penalty heroes, having scored five for five. And in this one, they uh, they missed, I believe, three of the four penalties that they took before losing 3-1 on penalties, including a miss from our very own Fabian Scher. So it was a bit of a redemption story um, for the Spanish keeper after his howler in the previous round. Uh, he was certainly pretty um, pretty amazing in the penalty shootout, but so was Jan Sommer. Um, Sommer had a really good penalty shootout here. It was just the case of how many players would actually score in this one. And Spain just kind of eked their way through it. In hindsight, looking back at it, I think, you know, given the red card and then Mbolo um, went off earlier in the game, with an injury. Um, so I was thinking of this one, it was probably a good thing that Spain went through because it made for a better spectacle in the semifinal, um, mm. see, seeing them kind of progress here. And of course, I, I predicted that they would. So Spain going through 3-1 on penalties at the end of the day. Um, but I think looking back, Switzerland can be very proud of the tournament that they played, knocking out the world champs in the previous round and just having a, in general, very impressive tournament for a team, you know, that, that is outside of the top 10 in the world. Absolutely. I think that's pretty perfectly said. Uh, Spain, or excuse me, Switzerland was, you know, this kind of came with that tenacious attitude that I, I think really any underdog-esque team needs to have, you know, this never say die mentality. And that's really what Switzerland did have. I, I think it's a good point that the wheels did kind of come off at the end, both with the red card and the, uh, the injury to Mbolo. It kind of similar to actually... Um, what I would say about the Denver Nuggets end of their season, you know, I always like to tie in my Nuggets. I uh, got to a point where, you know, the injuries and the uh, ability to kind of keep it all going started to, to wane. And it was about the right time for Switzerland to exit in this yeah. tournament. But yeah, hats off to them. Uh, everyone loves to see Shakiri on the national international stage anyway. And we all got to see that with a couple of goals from him. So kind of got everything we wanted out of Switzerland. Yeah, great tournament for them. Like we said, I think, you know, this was the, the right team advancing, though, in Spain. On to the next game in the quarters. This was Italy against Belgium. I would say pick of the last eight here. Um, Italy came into this one 
with maybe maybe the element of being the underdogs in this one, given Belgium are one in the world and many were touting them. Not this guy, though. I've, I said in advance that Belgium were going to go out in this game. I said Belgium were overrated. I was right. I was right. I was right. That's it. Wow. I, a succinct statement. I don't know. I, I, I pushed back on this when you texted me that you you were right in the sense that Belgium was overrated. I thought this 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 match did not prove necessarily that Belgium was overrated, eventually falling to the eventual champions of the tournament. Something that I pointed out in our last podcast was that the um the hazard brother that was injured in the, going into this match was Aiden Hazard, not Forgan Hazard. So they did have um, you know, the, the pick of the two brothers in terms of the performances this tournament, as well as a, a slightly healthy Kevin De Bruyne. Um, but I think Be- Belgium put up a decent match in this one. It was a match largely decided in the first half. Um, but it, ultimately, I, I think you can kind of say the same thing, right? That the, the better team went through. Again, obviously, we now know that Italy was the best team at this tournament. Um, but I, it, I, I suppose the, the one thing that you can kind of critique on Belgium pretty heavily is, is this the end of the road for a lot of their current international uh, aspirations with a number of their players getting to you know, some some advanced ages? Kevin De Bruyne, uh, both center backs, for, or all three center backs, Vertonghen, Alderweireld, and Thomas Vermeulen. Um, I am really interested to see what happens to Belgium going forward and who they kind of base that team around, whether it's the younger Azard brother, whether Kevin De Bruyne somehow can just stick around and play maybe a bit more of a deep lying role that doesn't uh, necessitate as much movement and energy, but it will be interesting to see like what's next for Belgium. Yeah. I think that was kind of one of the questions that I had coming out of this game. And I don't think it's fair to say that that's all of those players done because the world cup is next year, right? Certainly later in that's true. later on next year, then we'll have a two year gap going into 2024. So I think 2024 euros are certainly too too late for some of these players in this team but i think that there's one more tournament that will there where they'll have a chance but they just when they come up against big teams they, they don't have it in them to, to advance they, for whatever reason maybe it's a mental hurdle they just can't get by it whenever they hit one of the big teams it, they don't get by them is that on roberto martinez then because oftentimes i think when you have a team that's not necessarily riddled by injuries and you see a different level of performance up against smaller teams and up against larger teams i think that that can often be attributed to the manager having to change tactics having to kind of reshape what the team looks like would you put that down uh to the uh, spanish manager well i it's a tough one i like robbie martinez he, um, by the way, two days ago, they confirmed that he will be staying on. So he will, at the very least, be manager okay. of Belgium in at the World Cup next season or next year, I should say. So it's a tough one. I don't put it solely at his door. Um, I think he's got aging center backs, and I think that's where a lot of the problem lies. And there aren't really any good natural successors to those center backs that are coming through the Belgium you know, youth ranks. And that, that was one of the things that was highlighted. So... I don't know that you could put anybody in there, even with all that offensive firepower. All it takes is a team like Italy that can stifle you defensively, and then they can hit you on the counter attack. And when your center backs have a combined age of, you know, some something in their mid sixties to late sixties, then you're going to have problems keeping up with these, you know, these young fast players. Um, and that's exactly what happened here in this game. I suppose so. Yeah. Well, nonetheless, Italy coming out. 
uh, victors in this one and going on to a semifinal against Spain. On to the Saturday matches. We had Denmark-Czech Republic starting off before England-Ukraine. Denmark-Czech Republic, I, I'd say maybe the last pick of the bunch from the kind of neutral supporter that, that might be looking for those those big names on the pitch. Neither Denmark nor Czech Republic really have any you know, massive, uh, what you would think of as world uh, renowned players, but this was a really, really great match and a match that kind of did epitomize the the fight that both of these teams put up uh, in this tournament. Um, Denmark, you know, riding all the momentum from the Christian Eriksen uh, injury uh, and kind of what the groundswell of support that came from behind. But I was I was immensely impressed with them in this match. I thought that this might actually, in a weird way, be a harder match for them, despite the fact that. Denmark had played a number of higher ranked teams uh, in the tournament just because they seem to be really good playing on the back foot and on the counter, whereas the Czech Republic is not a team that is going to dominate possession. Um, but credit to Denmark, they, they really did reshape and the assist uh, by, uh, I can't remember his first name, Male, the, the winger Male, in Denmark. Yeah. Uh, for, for that goal by Dolberg was the assist of the tournament, the tournament for me, uh, the, the outside of the foot whipped in curler that mm -hmm. just was a, a tap in for Dolberg. So this uh, probably in my mind, the, you know, as a non-English supporter, the, the most entertaining match of the quarterfinals. Interesting. I, I don't know that I necessarily would agree that it was the most entertaining match of the quarterfinals, but I do think that Denmark were thoroughly deserving in the fact that they won this game. Um, Schick got another goal for the Czech Republic. I think we should tip our hats to him. Um, phenomenal tournament for, for him. He was tied um, I think for top goal scorer in this with Cristiano Ronaldo. So just an excellent, excellent tournament for him. And then um, Denmark getting through this one pretty comfortably, like I said, uh, and not really having to do too much, I would say, in this game. Uh, it, it was a fairly comfortable win for them. And I think, you know, we're looking, looking at it with the momentum that they had, not a surprise to see them come out victorious against the Czechs. Certainly. Yeah, this was a bit of a coin flip. And I, I think that, you know, the, both the bookies and the uh, the majority of fans in the pub would have said that Denmark would, would probably win this match. Very impressed by that Czech Republic side. As you said, um, Premier League fans would, would know uh, Tomas Suchek and uh, Pavel Kufal, as, or excuse me, Sufal, name is spelled Kufal, pronounced Sufal, um, mm -hmm. as the, the two... Uh, big Premier League representatives from West Ham on the Czech Republic, but uh, Chick was unbelievable in this tournament, uh, potentially the goal of the tournament uh, with his strike in their opening match against Scotland and then keeping it up the whole time. So I agree with you, though. Ultimately, it was a, a deserved win and, and kind of in all three of the games we've talked about. Uh, and I, I assume that the fourth match as well, but the team that you think deserved it was the team that actually went through. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. So so pivoting over to that fourth match, England playing their only game away from Wembley, playing in Rome against the Ukraine, and what a display this was from from England. I think probably the most impressive performance they had in the whole tournament, including um, the semi and the final, just looked really dominant in this. And not a surprise that that coincided with Jaden Sancho's first start of the tournament. I thought he was excellent in this game and Harry Kane started to finally hit some form as well. So this was a really good dominant attacking display for them. Yes, it was against the Ukraine. Yes, it was against a team that aren't really known for being, you know, very good def defensively, but I, I think England were very impressive in this game. 
Um, I was also very happy to see the class really throughout the tournament of um, Shevchenko as manager of the Ukraine. You know, I remember him growing up as being an all-time great for the Ukraine in terms of goal scorer. We've been able to see him. I'm sure you've been able to watch him and see the quality striker that he was. And I just thought the way that he set up Ukraine throughout the entire tournament was very admirable. This was a step too far for them, I think. Um, they'll learn from it and they'll be stronger for it. But just really, really good, solid tournament from the Ukraine that I think can help them build. And I hope that they're, you know, they're going to continue to play well. And this young core of players that they have coming through will, will, will help them to advance to a lot more major tournaments in the future. I agree with that, and I, I think the credit rightly given to the Ukraine, and uh, you'll, I think it's a tough one, right? Because typically you'll remember a team for their last match in the tournament, so people will look at this and be like, "Oh, Ukraine, you know, punched way above their weight and got got sent reeling back with a four nil win." But in, in a way, and I was thinking about this actually after that match, um, Ukraine having gotten out of their group in third. Uh, you know, on, on the back of, of the new third place rule and then defeated Switzerland, or excuse me, Sweden in their round of 16 match. I, in a way, I think that those wins, you know, the, the ability for a team to to play against the teams that are around their level, so Ukraine, Sweden, kind of at that same level, I think that's almost more indicative of the future of an international team than a match against a team like England where they were completely outclassed and, you know, were really playing off the park. I, I think that those there's big wins like the one that Switzerland had over France where a team is truly punching well above their weight is great for the moment, but is not necessarily as, you know, I, I'd say constructive moving forward for how do we continue to build this team and how do we see uh, longevity. Then for, for Ukraine here, you, you take what you did in the group, you take what you did against Sweden and you look at that and say, okay, we, we have a true, you know, player in Zinchenko that we can build this team around, you know, a young superstar on the national scale. Um, whereas a game like this, you, you try to kind of write it off. I think if, if you're Ukraine, try to try to make your memory as short as possible. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Yarmolenko, Yaremchuk had great tournaments as well. I thought they were both great from an attacking standpoint. So tip of the hat to uh, Mr. Shevchenko for a great managerial success, I would say for, for the Ukraine, not somebody with a lot of, if any, I'm not sure if he has any club experience as a manager, um, but certainly doing a good job for his home country there. So a bit of a legend there in Ukraine, we'd say. So that wraps up our quarterfinals. So we see Spain advancing um, to play Italy, and we see Denmark advancing to play England. On to the semis, the first of those games was Italy against Spain. Do you want to kind of take the uh, the play-by-play -play here, Zach? Certainly, yeah. Uh, again, just like the the match that Spain played the round before, another very, very nervy 1-1 draw after uh, regulation. The uh, man of the match in this one for me was Federico Chiesa, the striker for Italy, who got the goal to, to send this one to extra time. I think Chiesa... Um, I, I, I considered him quite a lot, actually, Adam, for some of our tournament awards um that, that we wrote out for later in the podcast i didn't end up giving any of them to him but the the 23 year old striker uh currently on loan from fiorentina at juventus really really impressed me uh, throughout this whole tournament impressed me in the final before coming off injured um and just kind of play with that reckless abandon that you don't often see with italian teams i think this was 
um, the the kind of story of the tournament for Italy was this is not you know your your father's your grandfather's Italy that just stays stays back and and kind of you know uh, only plays forward at the perfect opportunities. There are a lot of players on this Italy team that are willing to to really run and stretch the game, and Chiesa exemplifies that and and did so in this match. Um, so yeah, more of a recap for regulation uh, before going to extra time. Uh, but yeah, that that was those were kind of my initial thoughts when when looking back at this one. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. And and to be honest, I'm not surprised. He's probably before your time, but his father um, Enrico Chiesa was a striker across Serie A for many many years. Um, did big things for the Italian national team as well. He looks exactly like his dad as well. It's quite scary seeing him on the pitch and you look at his face and it reminds me of his dad very much. But you know. He was a legend for Fiorentina, Enrico Chiesa, and that's um, the home home team now for Federico. So, just really, really cool to see that kind of family history um, spanning spanning across multiple generations for the Italian national team. Um, but, but I digress. In this one, we saw a one-one draw. We saw Italy go through on penalty kicks in what was a very great, good game for the the neutral here. And I think it kind of panned out the way I thought it would. It would be a tight defensive game. Italian stifling Spain's attacking prowess scored five goals twice in this tournament um, and kind of neutralizing that threat somewhat. And Donnarumma again with just another great display in the penalty shootout. Absolutely. It, it was a great display and also a uh, quite poetic way for for italy to win that penalty shootout with Jorginho, their their number five and um a, a man who is kind of widely regarded as one of the top penalty takers in the world again a little bit of a foreshadowing to something we'll talk about in the final um but really really just absolutely uh deking unai simone for that final penalty to to send italy through um kind of interesting for me to watch, you know, nobody, I think nobody's penalty run up is more well known in the world right now than Jorginho's, um, not only doing the stutter step, but doing this kind of stutter hop that is quite unique to him. Uh, and it seemed like Simone just completely miscalculated the timing of it and was on the ground by the time that uh, Jorginho was landing from that little uh, stutter hop and Jorginho able to very easily from there pass the ball into the corner. So I think that that was a, a quite fitting way for that uh, that penalty shootout to end, especially considering you know the history that Italy uh, number five penalty takers have with some some cheeky stuff in international tournaments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was a good game. It was what I expected. It was the Italians progressing. It was my fifth consecutive prediction in a row that was correct. And on we move to the second semifinal. Great. In, in one ear, out the other. Let's just get to the final so we can hear you rag on about England. Um, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready one, to rant already, Zach. I'm ready to rant. I, I can I, tell. I can, I can tell you're not putting up with uh, the formalities. So yes, we can. We can quickly skip through this. This match happened uh, what a, a year ago, uh, last Wednesday, July seventh. Unfortunately, Denmark's miracle run coming to an end in their semifinal against England, but not before uh, the Danish scoring the first goal against England in the tournament, free kick of the tournament. It was actually the first direct free kick scored in Euros, and it ended up being the only one, um, a remarkable free kick as well, just an absolute laser beam that stayed in the air, and Jordan Pickford didn't really have a prayer for it. Uh, 
Um, and then England, uh, from there, kind of turning it on a little bit more, getting an own goal uh, from, how do you pronounce his name? Kar? Kar? Um, the captain. K-J-E-A-R. Yeah. Yeah. Your guess is as good as mine, the captain of Denmark turning the ball into his own net in one of those circumstances where if he slid in and if the ball didn't hit him, it was going to hit the foot uh, of Harry Kane. So not really anything on him, uh, but England able to get the win in extra time. Oh, do you have something to say before we go into that? Before I go into extra time, I wanted to tell you the final stat for own goals in this tournament, because <laughs> it's a good one. Um, in okay. the previous... 15 tournaments, 15 European championships combined. There were nine own goals. How many were there in this tournament? One, two, <laughs> five. There were 11 own goals. In there this. were 11 own goals? This was the 11th. What? Yeah, there were 11. So with nine in the previous 15 tournaments, this being the 16th tournament, we more than doubled the amount in European Championships for own goals to 20. That's insane. Well, there were two alone wow. in the Germany-Portugal Germany, Germany -Portugal game. That's true. That That is a good point. And then we had we had two goalkeeping howlers in the round of 16, so Dubrovka, uh, a Dubrovka. lot of memorable ones. Martin Dubrovka. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. That's crazy. That's a yeah. nuts statistic. Wow. Yeah. Yep. I, I mean, I, I don't think there's a reason for it. Just kind of a fluke, I guess. But, um, yeah, lots of own goals. Interesting. They're, they're, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I have no, I have no desire to, to right now try to pick apart why that might be, but that is a great stat. Um, I'm glad you, glad you brought that up. Uh, okay, so to wrap up this match, though, um, one of the most controversial moments, maybe the most controversial moment in Euros, happening in extra time. Uh, Raheem Sterling running into the box at at full pace as he normally does falling over amidst a bit of contact and a penalty awarded to England uh, with only 10 minutes to go. Uh, Harry Kane dispatching, not dispatching the penalty, uh, but dispatching the rebound after it came off of Casper Schmeichel to put England ahead for good 2-1. Uh, I guess the, the only thing left to ask you there, Adam, was it a dive? Um. I think he felt contact, and I think he went down too easy. I don't think that's a dive. When there's contact, I don't think it's a dive. But I think that he definitely was looking for it. Um, and when he felt that contact, he did the traditional Raheem Sterling kind of dying swan motion, and mm -hmm. the ref referee bought it. And I think if it hadn't been given on the field and it had gone to VAR, they probably wouldn't have given the penalty. They would have backed up a referee's decision, but there wasn't enough there because there was an element of contact in my eyes that it, to, to overturn it, right? It has to be a clear and obvious error, and I don't think that if the referee makes that call on the field and sees some contact that you can watch that and do it. I think it was a soft penalty is a good way to describe it. I agree with that. I think that it almost was the, the perfect meeting of a, poor, a very, very poor call and the inadequacies of VAR in the sense that as you just said, it couldn't necessarily be overturned because it wasn't a clear and obvious error. But if the opposite happened and it wasn't called as a penalty, it wouldn't have been given uh, by VAR because it wasn't a clear and obvious error. So, you know, the, the same play viewed two different ways almost gives you the two completely different results, which 
seems a little fishy to me. I think that in terms of the timing of the penalty and how soft it was, it was a pretty awful call. But I agree from from Sterling's perspective, it, it you know he was looking for something and he took advantage of it. I just think it's it, it was pretty pretty poor to see a referee give something of that nature at such a an important juncture in that game. Yep, there there was that element to it, and then I'm I'm sure you saw the um the stories going around. There was two balls on the pitch at the time that Sterling made the run for the penalty. There was a second ball randomly on the pitch. Whatever, who cares? It's nobody's fault. Um, and then what did happen was there was a laser pen that was shone in Schmeichel's eyes right before the penalty was taken. It was a green laser pen, kind of crazy, from mm -hmm. obviously an England supporter in the crowd. I don't know if they ever caught who did that. Um. But then he subsequently saved the penalty, so it was stupid and didn't work anyway. Of course, Kane got the rebound, and the rest is history. England progressed to one, but many controversial moments in that one play that I think, you know, certainly were uh, were worth talking about and de deep diving on here. No pun intended. <laughs> Very good. Um, and yeah, tip, before we hop into our uh, first clue for Euro trivia and our commercial break, I do want to very much so tip the cap as deeply as possible to Denmark. Uh, people will always remember this tournament for the Christian Eriksen cardiac arrest and um, what happened from there. But, uh, you know, with with Christian Eriksen, nobody would have expected Denmark to get to the semifinal. And, and without Christian Eriksen, uh, nobody would have expected Denmark to even get out of the group, I think. So the fact that they really, really performed at this level um, just speaks to how good that team is uh, Denmark really the perfect example, I think, of a team, you know, again, lacking very many superstars, but every single player knows their role and every single player does it well. Um, really, the people who popped out for me, Dolberg was fantastic leading lines. Uh, Pierre-Emerick Hoiberg was fantastic as well in the center of midfield as he was all season for Tottenham. Uh, and then Mal, uh, however you pronounce that, the winger, yeah. Uh, yeah. was was really great as well, as well as Kasper Schmeichel. He was the one I was going to mention. I thought Damsgaard obviously scored the goal in this game, but I thought he had a good tournament too. He's a good young prospect. I think he'll be around for, for many years to come for Denmark. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. So before jumping into that commercial break, Adam, first clue for our trivia. I'm very interested to hear what this is. Yeah, reminder on the question, who was the first player to receive a straight red in Euro 2020? Your first clue, Zach, is this player currently plays in the English Premier League. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I still do not know the answer, but that is good. That will, that will help me. That will statistically narrow it down. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, we'll be back after a word from our sponsors. All righty, we are back for the second half of episode 72 of The False Nines, recording just hours after the heartbreaking finals loss for England against Italy. And with that, we will dig into the final that took place this afternoon the 11th of July, year of our Lord or year of science, depending on what you believe, 2021. A quite riveting match from the neutrals perspective. And I, I, I want to I kind of frame this, Adam. I, I want to, I'll run through my instant reactions to the match. Um, let's hold off on penalties for now. And then I mm -hmm. want to hear your instant reactions. So we'll go through regulation, uh, extra time, and then 
pen. So first half, England was dominating in this match. And it really did feel like, you know, that kind of perfect culmination of everything they had been doing in this tournament, playing at home, playing in front of a a, a stadium of Wembley that most certainly had more people than that had seats, uh, it looked like. Uh, and England coming out to truly a dream start with the Luke Shaw goal, horrible defending by Italy, uh, but Shaw credited him drifting into the back post, putting away a beautiful half volley to put England up after just 90 seconds. And in the first half, England quite, quite literally were coasting. They were looking uh, really, really fantastic. Uh, a lot of dangerous attacks going forward. Uh, we saw Shaw continue to bomb down the left. Harry Kane was playing this really great deep line playmaker role, kind of dropping back into somewhat of a false nine and, and spraying the ball out wide um, as he did for that first goal. And so really coming into the half, Adam, I, I'd like to hear your your thoughts going into halftime. I was, I was thinking that England were, you know, perhaps good for one or two more goals as this game progressed. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interesting. I think I find it very interesting that you say that. Um, the, the opening goal was fantastic. Harry Kane spraying the ball out wide. Kieran Trippier, who I was kind of surprised got the start, put in a peach of the ball to the far post. Di Lorenzo got pulled inside, um, two on one, trying to, to mark uh, the attacker there. And basically wide open at the far post was Luke Shaw. He still had a lot to do, to be fair. Um, and he finished it um, in a way that I think a striker would have been proud of. It was a phenomenal finish from a player that isn't known for phenomenal finishes. Struck it well. Um, Donnarumma got a little bit of it. So did the post, but the power that he hit struck it with no keeper in the world is going to keep that out of the back of the net. So dream start. Um, I watched it in the pub. The pub went crazy. It was vast majority of which were, uh, were England fans. And, you know, you thought this, this might be it, right? This is dreamland. You're pinching yourself like this. This might finally be, be the time for the rest of the first half. I thought Italy were piss poor in the first half. I thought Italy couldn't have played much worse. Um, the times mm -hmm. that I'd watched it in, in the tournament, um, you know, watching them play against Wales, watching them play against Spain, watching them play against Belgium, they've been thoroughly impressive, you know. And the Austria game aside, I think that was maybe the only blip on the radar where they maybe weren't looking as good. I thought that this was a very poor performance from them. So you expected them to come out second half and do well. Now, England's performance in the first half, although. They, they dominated much of the meaningful possession, I would say. They didn't create a ton. Um, there wasn't really, other than the goal, a moment I can think of where the keeper was tested or Donnarumma was tested in this first half. And I thought that it was a little bit inept. Most of the good stuff for England was coming down the left-hand side. I thought Luke Shaw had a great game. I actually thought, as much as I don't like him, um, Declan Rice had, had a decent first half as well. Um, and that Rice... Phillips combo actually looked like it was doing a really great job in that first half of containing Italy very well from a defensive standpoint. Um, but I thought from an attacking standpoint, some of the more offensive players, you mentioned Harry Kane, he sprayed that ball out well. I thought Kane was largely phased out of the game. You thought he was dropping back into this false nine role. I thought that he was actually frozen out of the game somewhat from a defensive standpoint by Italy. Um, and then I thought, Raheem Sterling was massively disappointing throughout this game. Um, in the first half, I didn't think he had a particularly good first half. Mason Mount was a little bit more impressive for me. Um, but still, I think, you know, he had such hype coming into this tournament, Mason Mount did, that he didn't live up to at all. And obviously the COVID thing happened. Maybe if he'd been playing consistently. 
I, I, I just don't think that he, he lived up to expectations on a world stage. You look at like Mason Mount against Calvin Phillips expectations coming into the tournament. No, yeah. nobody, nobody thought Calvin Phillips would be starting a game for England. He started pretty much every game. And then Mason Mount, you thought was going to be this kind of all-star in it. And he did nothing really, let's be honest from a tournament standpoint. So I digress first half England certainly were the better team largely because the Italians were terrible in the first half. Um, well taken first goal, not a lot of chances created by either side though. Really good Chiesa shot that went wide of Pickford's post after staying on his feet, which I thought he did very well. Um, and that was it for the first half, I think. Just not not a huge amount to write home about for me. Before we do jump into the second half, I, th I think you kind of alluded to something that I did want to talk about, which is um, a, a question that I'll have at the end of our, our finals recap regarding, you know, what's next for, for both of these two teams. I think one big question to talk about, uh, and we can dig into this in a few minutes, for England is what's next for the number 10 role in the national team? Because I agree with you, Mason Mount, largely absent from this match. Um, I actually, I, I thought that Sterling played all right. It, it was kind of uh, almost uh, um, St. Maximin-esque at times for Sterling of making these runs kind of into nowhere just to beat a couple men. Um, but with Mount, I think what this tournament largely revealed is he is not necessarily a number 10 as much as he is this kind of pseudo winger uh, attacking midfielder. And I, I think that this match did a kind of a, a nice job of emphasizing that, uh, at least in the first half. Um, we'll, we'll jump in now to the second half uh, because I, I do want to hear your thoughts on that when we talk about you know, what's next for England. Second half, a completely different game, wasn't it, Adam? Yep, um, quite the team talk from Mancini. I'm sure he probably gave him an earful at halftime, but Italy obviously came out. I mean, they, they had to. They're playing in a major tournament final. They couldn't play much worse in the first half. They played great in the second half. They were absolutely the better team in this one. Um, they, they came out. They created the chances. They duly equalized from Bonucci, two defenders with the goals in regulation, um, Shaw and Bonucci. I thought it was quite fortunate um, the way that the ball ended up falling to him. Um, Pickford actually did really well to, to make the save, I thought, and had a, had a fairly good game all around, I thought. Um, but, you know, they, they scored a scrappy goal, got back into it, and created plenty, created plenty of chances after that too where they could have potentially wrapped it up in regular time. Um, England kind of started to fizzle out a little bit. Um, looked like they needed a spark. I think you and I were texting and it looked like the writing was on the cards before that second goal went in. And I was texting with my brother-in-law, Steve, and I was like, they need to bring somebody on. They need to bring like Saka on or Sancho on. They need an outlet. They don't have an outlet right now. And they're just starting to spend deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what happened. The goal came from, from the corner. So I think first, gripe with Southgate was you can make substitutions and you can make them earlier when you feel like the game is starting to slip away a little bit. I think he waited too long. He brought Saka on after that. Um, I thought it was a little bit too late to have that creative, out that creative outlet there because the Italians were coming at them. I think that was kind of the big thing for me was England almost scored a little bit too early and reverted back into their shells from a defensive standpoint and they wanted to play on the counter but they didn't have the players to play on the counter because Mount and Sterling weren't having a very good game. And like you said, Harry Kane was getting either dropping back or getting frozen out of it. So you needed a creative spark. Um, you got it when Saka came on, but too little too late for me in that. Certainly. Yeah, I agree. I think that the second half was almost two, you know, two separate matches in its side itself with 
Italy pouring on this pressure. I, I remember at one point, right before their goal, a, a graphic came up on my TV saying that they had had 71% possession in the second half, which was not surprising to hear at all. And then once they scored, the, the game kind of shifted once again to now, okay, will either of these teams be playing to try to win it in regulation or are both of them going to kind of sit back and, and let this game go to extra time, not try to open up you know, themselves to a potential mistake that will lose them this game immediately. Um, but I agree with you. The, the substitutions were a bit too late um, and a bit more reactive than they were proactive. Uh, but overall, I mean, Man- Mancini, um, if, if it was kind of a, a battle of two halves, um, Sethke won the first half managerially on the back of a goal, a little less on the back of coaching, whereas Mancini clearly, clearly outcoached uh, outmanaged Southgate in that second half and and really, you know, took the game by the scruff of its neck um, and sent it into extra time. Yep, exactly. So it went into extra time, and, and I don't know if you felt the same way, but I never had any other feeling than it was going to play out with no more no more goals in extra time and go to penalties. Absolutely. It just, it just looked like a game where it was kind of a chess match almost where nobody wanted to make a mistake. And both teams were happy rolling the dice and getting to that point where you would have a penalty shootout to, to decide it. And, you know, I, I want to take a moment to talk through, there, there's really nothing of note that I think we, we need to talk about necessarily in extra time, aside from the substitutions that were made. And I'm going to focus on England's part here, right? Saka comes on for Trippier in the 70th minute of this game. Jordan Henderson comes on for Declan Rice in the 74th minute. Thought he was kind of unlucky to be substituted there, but I understood why he brought him on. He waits, Southgate does, nine minutes into injury time before bringing Jack Grealish on to try and add a little creative spark in the team. Grealish should have been on before the 90 minutes. Um, And then at the end of the game, at the, the very end, in the 120th minute, Southgate makes his double substitution. He brings on his two remaining of his five substitutes. And every part of me said, and I was talking to family, I was talking to friends when this was happening, you bring on Marcus Rashford and you bring on Dominic Calvert-Lewin, right? And those are two penalty takers mm-hmm. from their respective clubs. He brought on Marcus Rashford and he brought on Jaden Sancho. Now the Sancho one, you're not bringing him on in the 120th minute because you think, oh, Sancho's going to have a creative spark in the next 30 seconds to win us the game before we go to penalties, you are bringing him on because you expect Jaden Sancho to take a penalty. And the person that you're substituting off the field is Jordan Henderson, who has taken penalties before for England, who has taken penalties before for, um, for his club team for Liverpool. And you're bringing him off the field and that's your substitution. And I'm texting with my brother-in-law, diehard England fan at the time. I'm like, who are your penalty takers before this happens? And he says to me, I'd have Grealish take a penalty. I'd have Kane take a penalty. I'd have Sterling take a penalty. I'd bring on Rashford and I'd bring on someone like Dominic Calvert-Lewin and they would take penalties as well. And I'm like, would you give Saka the opportunity to take a penalty? He's like, no, he's 19 years old. It's too much weight to put on his shoulders. And this is the substitution that we make. We take off this Jordan Henderson, who's been there, done that, lifted the Champions League trophy with Liverpool, knows how to handle big game pressure. And you take off that person who came on as a substitute in the 74th minute. Gareth Southgate lost this for England with those two substitutions. I thought Rashford was right. 
but I thought taking off Jordan Henderson was a huge mistake. And I thought bringing on Jaden Sancho was also a massive mistake. Play the odds. And, and then from there, you, you have a better chance of winning this penalty shootout. And obviously, Gareth Southgate himself does not have good records in penalty shootouts. He was the one that missed in Euro 96 that meant England got knocked out against Germany and missed out on a place in the final the last time the tournament was here in the UK. And I just, uh, I, I was so angry before we even got to the penalty shootout. So I'll leave it there. And I'd love to hear your thoughts as well as a neutral watching this. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a lot to, to kind of respond to. I, I, I think that one thing that was coming to my mind at this time, again, before the penalty shootout is this question that I, I ask myself, and I don't know if there's a way that you can really like dig into this statistically, but a question that I ask myself on what's more important in a penalty shootout, is it having your guy who you think that you know, watching him on, on the training field and watching him in, in league play is a, a, a better penalty taker, or is it having the guy that, like you said, a, a man like Henderson, a guy that has been there, obviously not been here at Euro finals, but been there in the big moments, uh, as a seasoned veteran and perhaps kind of is able to stomach the moment a bit more. And you go, you can go back and forth in that because you, you see guys that are just, you know, lights out from the penalty spot, even at young ages. But I've always leaned to the belief that it's about having the, the, the medal for it more than it is having, uh, you know, the, the slightly better penalty statistics, uh, and that, that was I, I, my first thought when those double substitutions were made um, is, you know, are, are, are you willing to put this in the hands of uh, potentially three different penalty takers that look like that are uh, ages 24 and younger? And, and that's what Southgate, that's the exact die that he decided to roll. Exactly, exactly. So going into the penalty shootout, um, England won the toss to decide which end they wanted to playing Italy won the toss as far as whether they would go first or second they opted to go first um the first penalty was always scored. A, always a be, always a better move always a better yeah, move I, I think, I think, you, I think, I think go first yeah I, I would I would agree with that Berardi scores the first penalty coolly taken beats Pickford Harry Kane steps up remember Harry Kane who missed a penalty against Schmeichel and was fortunate to get a rebound no rebounds here you miss you miss um dispatched his penalty to the left hand side then Andrea Bellotti stepped up for his penalty shootout, which was saved by Pickford. I'm going to give a little credit where credit is due here for Jordan Pickford. I don't think he really put a foot wrong in the entire tournament. And if there's one player that didn't deserve to lose this penalty shootout for England, it's Jordan Pickford. I thought he was phenomenal, phenomenal throughout that. Next stepped up Harry Maguire, and here was the first what the fuck is Southgate doing moment for me. Um, fair play. Harry Maguire, probably with the best <laughs> penalty of the 10 that were taken, um, hammered it into the top right-hand corner, destroyed a camera that was apparently sitting in the top corner of the net. I don't know if you saw the replay for that, but basically he he um, hit the camera that was in the back of the net, and it basically took it out. So England go up 2-1 after two penalty kicks. Bonucci, who scored the goal in regulation, steps up, dispatches his penalty. It's 2-2. Then comes up Marcus Rashford. I can't fault Southgate for the decision to put Rashford up. I don't know what Rashford was doing with this stupid stutter step that he did, trying to get the goalkeeper to commit, but he rattled it off the left-hand post. 
and we're all level again at two after three penalties. Any thoughts on this penalty, Zach? It, the the Rashford penalty was it it seemed as though it was it, like again I'll, I'll use this this phrase of a, a match of its own within that match the the amount of time that Rashford stood there motionless staring at Donnarumma after the whistle had been blown for him to be able to begin his run up uh, the the way in which he he started this almost ninety degree vertical angle and then kind of swung out to the side for his run up and then that stutter step that he did ultimately sending Donnarumma the wrong way, but hitting it off the post. Um, it was, it was a, an entire kind of, you know, this entire drama that we saw unfolding. And I agree. I I've always said, you know, my, my maybe my most curmudgeonly stance in, in football is uh, you should in a penalty shootout, just run straight up to the ball and kick it really hard uh, into the net. I, I think that stutter steps are idiotic. I think that any sort of playfulness with your run-up is idiotic. And I think that this one kind of it, it kind of just deeper and deeper entrenched me in that belief system because uh, the Rashford penalty was awful, 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 awful. Yeah, no, it was it was not a great one. But, you know, maybe he's learning at the club from Bruno Fernandes with a stutter step. Who knows? It's a Manchester United thing. So England missed their first penalty. The substitute that came on in the 120th minute marks Rashford takes a third one and misses it we're at 2-2 after three Bernadeschi steps up puts it down right down the middle very ballsy penalty kind of rolls it down the middle Pickford's committed and it's 3-2 to Italy then up steps Jaden Sancho and he didn't look he didn't look confident from the get-go he didn't look comfortable and I don't know that it's his fault you bring on two players in the 120th minute they don't have any game time. They haven't kicked or really touched the ball or had any chance to really get a feel for the ball or a feel for the game. Sancho steps up. Donnarumma saves it. I'm not surprised, um, but it all rests now at 3-2 on the, penalty, the fifth penalty from Italy. They have to miss or the game is over and Italy win on penalties. Up steps Jorginho. He's only got little arms, but he managed to get one of them to this penalty Pickford tips it onto the post and gathers it in his arms. Pub went crazy. It was, it's still 3-2. And then you're like, well, who's the fifth penalty taker going to be, Zach? Who are we going to have to step up? Could it be Jack Grealish, who takes penalties for Aston Villa? Could it be Raheem Sterling, who is one of the best players on the England roster and has had an amazing tournament? I don't know. Could it be either of those players? No. Let's put the pressure and the stress of the fifth penalty taker, which was decided in advance of the penalty shootout, not during. He didn't pivot and go, oh, it's 3-2 and we need to score. Let's put Bukayo Saka in. He decided that before it happened. So your final three penalty takers are Rashford and Sancho, who came on the 120th minute, and Bukayo Saka, who came on in the game. I have so much sympathy and empathy for Bukayo Saka having to step up and take that penalty with the weight of the world on his shoulders at 19 years old to have to do that. That is a shit decision from Southgate. Awful managerial decision from him. You know, put Harry Kane on at fifth. If you're going to have Saka take a penalty, have him take a penalty earlier on. You don't put a 19-year-old substitute under that amount of stress and pressure in an international tournament. It's absolutely awful. And he duly puts it to the right-hand side, Donnarumma saves it. The game is over. Italy win the Euros. Now, now, first and foremost, before I continue my rant, I want to say credit to Italy. 
I thought on the day they were probably the better team. I think they edged it in terms of it. Donnarumma is a class goalkeeper. That guy is like six foot five, but he looks like he's seven feet tall when he's in goal trying to save penalties. Um, great goalkeeping performance from him. Um, I put all of the blame for this loss solely at the door of Southgate. His substitutions, his tactical decisions that he played in this game, I think that he plays a predictable, boring brand of football when he has so much talent at his disposal. I like that he keeps it tight at the back, but I think from an offensive standpoint, so little is created because he doesn't want to open the door at the back um, and doesn't want to open up that risk from a defensive standpoint. So... I've got I've got more to say, but I'll pause for a second. Your thoughts, Zach, on the way that the penalty shootout played out and Gareth Southgate's decisions therein. Yeah, I mean, I I think you covered it quite nicely. There's not really much much more in terms of you know how it played out uh, that that I would contribute. I I agree. I think that that was you 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 have echoed and said everything that I was thinking throughout. Um, this happening in real life. Uh, I, I'll say as the penalties went on um, for England, the player stepping up to take a penalty got younger and younger with every single penalty, which is a little interesting. Uh, Harry Kane, Harry Maguire, and then your last three, Rashford at 23 years old, Jaden Sancho at 21 years old, and Bakayo Saka at, or at 19 years old. So again, going back to what I just mentioned, uh, is the is the strategy to have your quote unquote best penalty takers up there, or is it to have somebody who can handle the moment? And I, I think that truly Gareth Southgate outcoached himself. And I know that that's kind of an overused sports idiom uh, of a, a manager outmanaging themselves, but that is really what took place here. These intentional substitutes to put in players for the penalty shooting shootout, assuming that without a touch of the ball, they'll be ready to step up. Uh, I think that can't be overstated. And then, as you said, they, it like it will be remembered for years and years. And the question will be asked of how in the world do you think putting up a 19-year-old with virtually no international experience before Euros, how in the world do you think putting him as your fifth penalty taker is um at all a good idea, whether it's Kane, whether it's obviously, you know, that Harry Maguire can hit a nice penalty. Um, although a lot of supporters may, may not have known that it just seems like of every single player he could have chosen from putting Sacco at the five made the least amount of sense. So I, I agree with you so much rests on Southgate's shoulders um, in terms of the penalty shootout. And then, as you said, more so in terms of just what this England team looks like, um, going forward, which I would love to kind of transition into that. Any more thoughts on the game itself before we we go into that? One one last thought on Southgate. You know, he's going to get plaudits. He's going to get you know, he's he's going to get a lot of people saying what a great job he's done. He is his own biggest enemy at times, and you look at the. He almost has this creepy fascination with like finding and unearthing these like seventeen year old gems that nobody's heard of in lieu of putting in, in the team in lieu of putting on the field players that are seasoned like Dominic Calvert Lewin is young, but Dominic Calvert Lewin is a penalty taker. 
You have Danny Ings that didn't make the squad. You had Callum Wilson that didn't make the squad. You had players like that. Um, Jesse Lingard, another example of a player that could have been there and stepped up and probably would have dispatched a penalty. And Southgate continues to want to put the weight of the world on all of these teenagers, these people in their early 20s. And he's like, this is the Southgate way that he decides that he wants to do it. And he makes this kind of, he kind of builds this problem for himself with his just, he just refuses to bring in these players that are more seasoned and can do a job. And I think that you've got to have a mix of some of that youth and a little bit of kind of seasoned, like experienced heads. But it's interesting because he also doesn't let those players play. Um, he's, he really stifles them from a creative standpoint. Like Saka didn't really get an opportunity to do much in this game. And then he missed the penalty. I just, I don't, I, he's reached a World Cup semifinal and a Euros final. And everybody's going to talk about that. I don't think Gareth Southgate is the right man to lead England forward. But do you think there's any chance in the world that he isn't the man that leads England forward into next year's World Cup? Not at all. Like they're, they're not going to get rid of him He's because he's done that. But I think if there were, you know, if there, if he actually had a different manager in there that would embrace some of the more attacking players, because they've got a great defense. Maguire and Stones were rock solid the entire tournament. Um, Maguire came in and, and, and has looked fantastic. I think Maguire is a great defender. Manchester United have a phenomenal player there that they need to build the heart of their defense around. They got that figured out. Let them play, Gareth. For Christ's sake, let them play. They can, they can play football. They do it week in, week out in the Premier League for their respective clubs. And you're just stifling them creatively. It's boring to watch. It's it's just not what the England fans want to see. And they take, they would take the success. It's like Mourinho. You take the success if you had those negative tactics, but it paid off. But that's two tournaments now where it hasn't. And the margins are fine. This is a penalty shootout loss in the final of the European Championships. And it's closer than England have gotten in a long time. But it's not good enough. And it's not good enough from the coach. Not the players, from the coach. I don't mean to dig and twist the knife anymore for our uh, our plentiful listeners that are Newcastle United supporters as well as as potentially England supporters like yourself. But it almost there's almost this reminiscence that I see between Southgate and this is a wild comparison Southgate and Kevin Keegan with the entertainers and I'm. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of rationalize this really quickly. I recently, just yesterday, finished a great book uh, by Michael Cox called The Mixer, and it's about the development of tactics in the Premier League since its inception in 1992 up until I believe the book was written three years ago. And one thing that it talks about when it gets to the the Keegan and the Entertainers era is you know is before Liverpool and Steven Gerrard's slip in 2013-14, the Newcastle dropping the title in 1995-1996 was the biggest collapse in in the Premier League. It was was the most famous second-place season that anybody's ever had. And a lot of the reasons that people attribute this this kind of fall apart is – this you know collapse, if you will, is the fact that that at the end of the day, Kevin Keegan didn't really have that plan B. He didn't really have the ability to – to 
look at this team and say, tactically, this is what needs to be changed. A lot of people, frankly, say that Kevin Keegan didn't have any tactics. He's quoted on record pretty much saying, we're going to let him go out and you know score more goals than the other team. Uh, and that's obviously not what we're seeing with this England team, right? It's not this team that just bombs forward with reckless abandon. But I think there are kind of parallels that could be drawn in the sense of at the end of the road, when you're right there, can you do enough to get the team over the line? Can you make those micro adjustments? Can you be like another famous Premier League manager, Claudio Ranieri? Can you be the tinker man that needs to be there to just figure out exactly what the team needs? And that I think I think is the the biggest question with Southgate, and and was the question with Keegan is can you can you do enough as the manager to affect the game and get your team a victory? And neither of those managers, uh, Keegan, never proved it, and and Southgate hasn't proven it yet. Yep, I think you're absolutely right. I think you said it beautifully earlier on. I don't think Mancini beat Southgate. I think Southgate beat Southgate. So where do we go from here? This is the last question I have before we jump into awards is for Italy, you know, there there will be questions of what what do they do with the defense, right? Benucci and Chiellini uh, coming on. Chiellini 37, Benucci, I believe 34 at this point in time. They obviously will not be there for much longer. Uh, so there will be questions of who can step up into that uh, center defensive role. But for England, what is what is next for them? What what are the tinkers that need to be made to make this team successful in the World Cup next year? I think the tactics. I think the players are there. I think they need a few more seasoned heads in the squad to kind of lead the young players a little bit. I think you have to I think you have to kind of like work on a more offensive attacking brand of football when you have the ball and keep that tightness in the back when you don't. Um, I was very impressed with England from a defensive standpoint, as well we should be. Southgate was a defender in his career, although so was Steve Bruce. I digress. Um, um, but uh, that's where I think the opportunity is. I think letting the attacking players do what they do best, letting the Grealishes flourish, letting the Sanchos flourish, letting those types of players get in there and not, not having to feel like everything needs to go through Harry Kane, not having Harry Kane be the only striker that sees the field during these, these competitions. I, I think that, I think that's a really good point because I agree with you, you know, England played seven, what seven or is it eight matches in this tournament and gave up one goal from open play. So the defense is, is set Kyle Walker at 31 oldest player on that defense has not lost a step. Um, and then next to him, Stones, Maguire, and Shaw, all with excellent tournaments. I'd say the the center defensive mid is a 4-2-3-1 in every single match. The center defensive mid, Phillips and Declan Rice, looked fantastic. They mm-hmm. they sat right in front of the defense. They, they didn't really go forward, but they didn't really need to. Um, but I, I think that's a very important thing, is there needs to be some variety here. It, it can't be we need to keep Harry Kane on for every minute because he's the best striker in the Premier League. That might be true, but... I've, I've thought that for a while, that it's an issue that when Harry Kane is not producing, you have nothing else through the middle, and the attack essentially ends with your number 10, who in this situation, Mason Mount, a man that I don't think is a fully grown number 10. Um, so I agree. I think, I think the, the upper half of the spine of this team is, is really what needs to be figured out. He's the captain, and he's undroppable right now, and he shouldn't be. 
Um, and maybe you transition that captain's armband off of Kane onto one of those players that you maybe should be starting every game. Dare I say it, Harry Maguire probably should be the one wearing that captain's armband at this point. Um, he does for Manchester United. He's a natural leader. I think um, he, he could certainly do that. Yeah, Maguire, Walker. I like. I, I see good rationale to giving it to him. I mean, even you know, Sterling. Like Sterling. I don't think Walker's Sterling's, a guaranteed starter. I, sorry, I was going to say that before. That's true. I think you know Reese James true. is coming through. I think Walker's days are numbered at right back. Um, you know, he's 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 not going to be playing much more than maybe the next tournament. I would think for the World Cup. Yeah, yeah, I, I I suppose that is a a fair point. I, I I agree though. I think there's there's an over excess of attacking players on England. You look at you know, the the team that was taken to Euros: Kane, Mount, Sterling, Grealish, Sancho, Calvert Lewin, Saka, Bellingham, who surprisingly got time. Uh, Rashford. I don't know if I even mentioned him. It, it, you you have to figure out how to fit these players in. And I, I think I think something that Southgate severely lacks is the ability to rotate. I think he can make substitutions, but I, I do not think he has proven that he can rotate a team because yeah. those things are two completely separate uh, abilities. He's proved that he's piss poor at making substitutions. Today is a fine example of that too. So uh, I would say that, you know, your, your point is a good one. He doesn't rotate, certainly not as much as he should. And that's fine from a defensive standpoint, but let some other attacking players have a chance. Did Grealish start a game? I can't remember. Maybe he did start one game in this tournament. But, like, I mean, he's, he's got to start. He's, he's looked dangerous every time he's come on. Like, why isn't that player starting? Yeah, why isn't he starting? Why isn't, why isn't he being played in the number 10? I, I yeah. will correct myself. Yeah. It, it actually... It, it actually was a, th- a three-four-two-one played today, uh, technically. Although Luke Shaw often dropping into defense and Kyle Walker often advancing into midfield. But I agree. I, I think that in in this game, you you saw England essentially uh, give up on having a number ten, and that's why Kane was dropping so deep. There had to be somebody to link up play and to bring the the, stri- the wingers in. And yeah, I, I think that why why isn't why isn't it Grealish? Why aren't you you know experimenting more with with Rashford with Calvert Lewin? Um, I, I agree with you that, that Kane presents a, a, not as much of a problem as he does a solution, but there there isn't having Kane in the game in every single match in every single minute of every single match definitely complicates your ability to provide any sort of variety going forward. Yep, I agree one hundred percent. There we go. All right. How do you feel, feel now? I was cathartic. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to get that off my chest because I've been wanting to for the last few hours. Truly, my pleasure. Um, all right. Should we? Should we? Should we end it light here, Adam? Should we just do some some tournament awards, something a little fun, some some tr- some imaginary trophies that will be given out? Yes, let's do it. And everybody, I'm sure all the players will be tuning into this one tomorrow morning to hear what Adam and Zach have said for their tournament awards. Yes. Yeah. I'm also, uh, just so you know, Adam, I'm going to, I'm going to add some, some impromptu awards that I should have added on this list. So you're going to have to think on your feet. Um, but let's, let's end, let's end with those. We'll, we'll start, uh, our awards with, uh, the best player of the tournament. And I, I put in parentheses here, best field player. Um, so Adam, who was your selection for the best field player 
of the Euro 2020.5 tournament. I went with Raheem Sterling for this one. Um, I thought he answered many critics coming into this one. There were a lot of pundits on his back. Three goals and assist. And it wasn't so much necessarily that he knocked it out of the charts in terms of like the statistics that he had in the goals and assists. I just thought, final aside maybe, he seemed to be the player that made England tick when they did. Um, and I thought he was a very beneficial player for them. It was actually quite hard to come out, come out with a best field player because you start looking at statistically, like should you have Patrick Schick up there because you know he's, he's got five goals in there. So did Cristiano Ronaldo. He beat all the records. But I went with Sterling for the influence that he had on this team throughout the tournament. Nice. I like that. I also tried to tried to stay away from just going on paper um, and went with a uh, the the captain who lifted the trophy at the end of the tournament, Giorgio Chiellini. Uh, I didn't think I would ever say this as. Um, you don't see a lot of plaudits being given in terms of entertainment value uh, to an Italian center back. But I thought that Chiellini just, you know, continues to kind of prove and prove again that that he is truly a world-class center defender. I thought he was excellent in this match. The, the one moment that I think you might be about to bring up is uh, his horse collar tackle on Bakayo Saka in extra time. Um, so, some people say a little a little lucky to not come away with a red card there. Uh, I, I'll, I'll let that one slide. I thought that Chiellini was pretty remarkable, especially at his age. Didn't seem to lose a step to anybody. Perhaps another critique of Southgate is not trying to attack Chiellini and Bonucci with speed, something that neither of them have a ton of. But, uh, yeah, just the the seasoned veteran um, able to, to kind of stay there and, and really not – uh, let anything go past them. So Keelina gives it for me. I love that. That's a great, great shout. And uh, that's actually not why I was laughing. It wasn't the horse car tackle. And it wasn't a red card because he wasn't the last man back. It was a very deliberate and smart move on Keelini's part to pull him back because Saka was away if he hadn't done that. He's a seasoned footballer. He knows what he's doing. He took the yellow card for his team there. What I was laughing about was there was a moment in extra time where England were coming down the left-hand side and they got into the box and they were trying to cut it back across the six-yard box. Mm-hmm. And Chiellini sprinted back and blocked that cross to put the ball out for a corner. And I screamed at the TV and I said, what are you doing? Get the ball earlier. Get the ball in earlier. He shouldn't be making that challenge. He's 50 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I screamed at the TV. And I got a couple of chuckles. Um, but it was it was you know I, I I don't I don't know where he gets the energy from. Um, he's he's such an old cool head to have in defense. Italians just know how to churn out these defenders, don't they? They're just uh, they just that's what they do. They, they they know how to make defenders in Italy. And Chiellini, I think, is a great shout. I think he's a a wonderful wonderful player and very deserving of lifting the trophy too. There you go. Um, Great. Okay, so from best field player to most disappointing field player, kind of leaving this one uh, really up to whatever you whatever you want to define as disappointing in this situation. I think this might this is my my best guess for a, an overlap that we had. So so who did you say for best disapp- most disappointing field player? I said it in the last pod too, and I I still think it's the case. Bruno Fernandez, four matches, zero assists, zero goals four attempts in four games. Um, 
a really kind of offensive juggernaut in Portugal that creates a lot of opportunities and a lot of chances. And a player coming into this who almost won player of the season at Manchester United was in the top five for goals and assists in the Premier League and nothing. Terrible tournament from him. Um, Bruno Fernandes takes it for me. I guess this I, I could have thought back a little bit to our last pod and, and think that we we may have we may have summed this one up without a lot changing. I said Killian Mbappe for sure. a very similar reason. Uh, no goals, one assist in four matches, also with a penalty miss uh, that needs to be remembered. So kind of a, a predecessor in terms of a young winger missing a penalty uh, to Sacco and Sancho, uh, Sancho happening in the final. But yeah, just kind of similar rationale. A player who is just on the up, on the up. Mbappe just getting announced as the repeat uh, cover player for FIFA 2022 that will be coming out this fall. And you saw very little uh, that he offered in this tournament. So surprising, especially France being the world champion, um, to have this kind of lack of threat coming from Mbappe. And perhaps that is a good transition Adam, to the most disappointing country. Uh, again, I think you can take this one in, in multiple ways, but who did you say for most disappointing country? Oh, it's France, 100%. World champions Definitely. never looked at the races in this tournament for me. Um, the Even beating Germany 1-0 in the first game, they did it with an own goal, didn't look that impressive. Um, just a very disappointing tournament all around. I don't think there's much else to say there. I think, you know, um, good friend of mine, Dave, who listens to the pod, big France fan um, was equally disappointed. Um, just he, I don't think he was happy that Deschamps got the, um, the seal of approval to carry them into the world cup. He hasn't really um, didn't really necessarily have a great tournament as a coach either. Mm -hmm. I agree. And for that exact list of reasons, I also selected France. I, I was thinking of who else it could be, maybe Germany, um, but I never really expected too much out of Germany in this tournament. But I think France is, is definitely the one to take this one yep. home. All right. Lovely. Um, getting on to the latter half of our awards. Award for most impressive performance from a dude who you didn't realize was actually that good. Do we, have that, do, we have, do we have that full title of that award written on the trophy? currently having it etched in by uh, the same okay. person who etches in the name of the tournament champion when the final whistle's won. Fantastic. I went with Patrick Schick. Um, five goals, joint top scorer in the tournament. Um, I think, you know, I, I had, it's not that I, I hadn't heard of Patrick Schick. He plays for Bayern Leverkusen. Um, I've watched a little bit of Bundesliga, so I know who he is. And I've actually seen him play against um, Wales and look quite impressive in the past. I didn't think he was top scorer in the Euros good, though. And he's consistently done it. It's not like he got a hat trick and then a couple goals. Like He he got goals in pretty much every game that he played in. Um, and I thought really carried a lot of the offense for, for the Czechs. Um, solid player. Still got many, many years left in his career. Patrick Schick for me. Very good. Two in a row, Adam, that we have said uh, the, the same answer for. It, it almost had to be Patrick Schick on this one especially after a very unconvincing season as the man leading the lines for Bayer Leverkusen in the Bundesliga only nine goals and one assist in 29 matches 
for Leverkusen. So to be so dominant and so consistent in this tournament, uh, just really, really, really impressive. Unfortunately, Cristiano Ronaldo does win Golden Boot on the back of having five goals and one assist in the tournament, whereas Schick had five goals and zero assists. I think it's a little ridiculous that Golden Boot is at all determined by how many assists you have, as that is not have anything to do with how many goals you score. But nonetheless, uh, a really, really great tournament for Schick. I, I'm not sure if he's in a place in his career where Leverkusen will necessarily try to cash in on him quite yet. I think he needs to prove it at the club level a bit more. But um, really, really nice job for for him uh, playing in, in front of that, that midfield of Suchek um, and the defense of Kuf, uh, Sufal that, that people know a bit more um, and a player that, that really made his name in this tournament. Yep. Absolutely. I'm glad we agreed on that one. He had a good tournament. All right. Lovely. Uh, wrapping up the last two questions that I do have written down at this point, best goalkeeper in the tournament. I, th I think there are a few you could choose from. Curious to see where you went. Um, for me, it was either one of the two goalkeepers that played today. And I think that Donnarumma um, obviously has to edge it. Um, I think also looking at his age, he's 22 years old. This guy has the world at his feet. Absolute quality. He has 33 caps for Italy at 22 years old. You, for me, the next Buffon, right? Um, when you think about like kind of the how dominant you expect this guy to be over the next 10, 15 years, nobody's going to oust him from that number one spot for Italy. This guy is your your goalkeeper for the next decade plus. Um and I don't think that's fair to say about Jordan Pickford. Although he had a good tournament, I think there was a lot of question marks put, um, and doubts put over Jordan Pickford's head coming into this tournament. He answered a lot of those critics, and fair play. I'm not a fan of Jordan Pickford, the person, but the player had an excellent tournament. But Donnarumma certainly edges this one for me. I agree for the most part. I think Donnarumma is the, is the correct uh, decision. I, I do want to give it... To, to somebody else, give a little bit of uh, variety here. I'll say that Casper Schmeichel is my goalkeeper of the tournament. Uh, another one where statistically uh, seven goals allowed in six matches is not really much to write home about. Um, and then only one clean sheet in those six matches. Uh, but Schmeichel was, in my opinion, the man of the match in the semifinal against England. Uh, really was hard done on that penalty save that the ball ricocheted right back out to Kane. I think that in a different world in which Schmeichel saves the penalty, um, the rebound is not put in and Denmark wins that match. I think that Schmeichel is, is given whatever, whatever the equivalent to being knighted is in Denmark <laughs> for his performance. Um, I thought he was excellent and, um, yeah, just a one of the one of the few foreign goalkeepers that a lot of Premier League fans do know already uh, from his long time at Leicester City. Um, and I also love the banter going into the semifinal. I did enjoy uh, questioning that. if the, if the trophy has ever been at home. Uh, which quick answer to that one: No, it hasn't. England has never won Euros. So I I, I love Gasper Schmeichel. He's he's great. Um, I, I would say that Kasper Speichel wasn't even the best Leicester goalkeeper at the Euros, let alone the best goalkeeper at the Euros, because Danny Ward was a much better goalkeeper. Danny Ward had the most saves in the group stages of any keeper. Very cool. And how far did Danny Ward get in this tournament? He got to the last 16, Zach, where he was promptly eliminated by Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one really backfired pretty quickly, didn't it? 
Not really, <laughs> not really. I expected it, but I'm, I'm just giving you giving you a hard time. I don't I don't think he's the best goalkeeper at Leicester. Schmeichel's remember 36 years old. Surprise, surprising to to think that, right? Is he's he really? uh, yeah, he's 36, so he's not got a lot of football left in him. I would think after this World Cup, that might be it for him for Denmark. Wow, he yeah, what a I, if, to be 36 years old and look like he does. I I hope that I can even be half of the man. Schmeichel is. <laughs> his, his dad was a baby face as well. Peter Schmeichel always looked a lot younger. True. Anyway. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Um, okay. And we'll we'll wrap this up uh, of the awards. Country of which you are now a quasi-fan. Again, this is a vague question intentionally. Um, similar to the most impressive performance from a dude you didn't realize was that good. What country do you now like to claim some sort of fandom ship towards? See, I thought everybody would say Denmark for this question, everybody being you and me. Um, and I'm not a quasi-fan of Denmark now because they eliminated my team. So I went with Hungary for this one. Um, I thought they gave, they were written off from like the moment the draw was made. The group of death, they had France, Portugal, um, and Germany in their group. And I thought they came out of it with a ton of credit. The only team that actually beat them, and they struggled to beat them, um, was Portugal. They had relied on a few late goals in, in that one, I'll always remember the atmosphere in Budapest for the France game and how intimidating that atmosphere was and the, when the goal went in, how the stadium was just rocking. Um, and I remember Wales going to Hungary in a qualifier, uh, I think a Euros qualifier a couple of years ago, and actually losing in Hungary and thinking, wow, this is a really hard place to come and get a result. Just thought they were they were a very impressive team, even though they didn't make it out of the group stages. For a moment there, they were in a qualifying spot to get out of it. And of course, results kind of changed. Germany got that late equalizer. So Hungary for me. Hungary. I like that. Um, Switzerland is my pick. They were just Switzerland was a bunch of rabid dogs in this tournament, and they were going at the throats of every team. Uh, again, led by the talismanic Sheridan Shakiri. Uh I never thought I would say this. Granted, Jaka had a pretty great tournament. Jan Sommer, yeah. um, another fantastic player. And Switzerland is also so much fun for me as an American uh, because unlike you know a, a country like Croatia where everyone's last name ends in IC, a country like Netherlands where almost every player has Van or Van Der in their name, Switzerland, you just have no idea where any of these guys are actually from. There's yeah. not really a Swiss name kit naming convention. And I think just for a completely neutral supporter, Switzerland is such an easy team to root for. Yeah, you've got you've got Seferovic, and I'm like, he doesn't sound like he should be Swiss. Seferovic, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you have Seferovic, Shakiri, Jaka, and Somer, and on the same team, like, and Mbolo as well. Like, like you could, you'd never, you'd never associate that with. with and Shar, of course. Like, yeah. there, there's no consistency, and none of them look alike either. It's not like the Italians were. You know, they're they they all you know look like these rugged, uh, sleek ma ma mafia men. You know, Switzerland yeah. is just a hodgepodge, and. I, America loves a hodgepodge. That's true. That's true. All right. So those are the official categories. You said you got some bonus ones for me, does that? Yeah. Let's see these ones quick. Goal of the tournament. Goal of the tournament. Um, I would say Patrick Schick's 
um, goal from the halfway line against Scotland. Yes, I, I think so. Uh, honorary mention to the free kick that uh, Damsgaard scored against um, England. That was a ridiculous free kick, but oh. I agree. The Schick, the Schick one. Um, and then maybe Thorgan Hazard's goal against Portugal. That, that, that would be my third place. Beautiful goal for, for Hazard, yeah. Okay, yeah, but I agree. Huh? Okay. okay, so that's goal of the tournament. Moment of the tournament? Maybe maybe that's the same as goal, but any moments that stick out to you is, 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 is something that you'll remember forever? The 10th minute of the Belgium versus Denmark game when after um, the incident happened with Christian Eriksen, they basically stopped the game and they just applauded because um, he's the number 10 for Denmark. That was the moment of the tournament for me. I love that. I love that. I will agree wholeheartedly on that one. Um, I think that's it. Do you have, do you have any, do you have any impromptu awards you want to shout out? Um, Oh, because this is always, this is always a conversation. This is always a conversation going into, to major tournaments. Um, best hairstyle of the tournament. There's a lot said about, um, Phil Foden trying to look like Gaza from Euro '96, but that certainly wasn't the best haircut. No, <laughs> no, that that wasn't it. He didn't play enough, I think, to get in my honorable mentions for that one or get the award best hairstyle. Do you have one off the top of your head? Let me think about this for a second. I don't have one off the top of my head. Um, I'm going to go with Gareth Bale's man bun to hide his bald spot. Does he have a bald spot? I was yes. unaware of this. Look up online, listeners, Gareth Bale, bald spot, and you'll see some pictures where he doesn't have it covered up, and it's really bad. I do right, on, look that right, on, right on the top of his head. That's a gross one. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if there are any particular hairstyles that I noticed as 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 notable. I, I liked Jaka going with the same thing as the Phil Foden. I thought that he, um, he did not have a good enough club season to, to warrant a hair change of that nature. So, so I'll go with I'll go with Jaka really, really coming out of nowhere and having a cocky hairstyle for a guy who did not play well for Arsenal last season. Uh, two mentions for Jaka in our award ceremony. That's uh, you never would have thought that before the tournament started. That right? is wild, isn't it? <laughs> um, cool. Well, unless you have another award, we can we can jump over to the Euro trivia and wrap this one up. Sounds good. Uh, I do not have another award, so let's go right into it. Um, See if you can get this one. I'm curious if you will. So the question again was, who was the first player to receive a straight red card in Euro 2020? The first clue I gave halfway through the pod was the player currently plays in the Premier League. And your second clue was, he got sent off against Italy. Okay. Italy. So it's the first player to get a straight red. And there's been more than one. It was earlier in the tournament. So cast your mind back. Was Italy in the group with Wales, right? They were. No. Yeah, yeah, they were. Okay, so mm-hmm. Italy and Switzerland. Wales, Turkey. Switzerland. It was Turkey. Okay, Italy, Wales. They got they wait, it was a it was a red card against Italy? No, he, they were, this player was sent off when playing against Italy. Yes, okay. Wales, Switzerland, Turkey. Oh, it was Fabian Schar. No. <laughs> no? It wasn't? Didn't he get a red card in this tournament? I Am I so. making that up? 
think you're making that up. Oh. Who sounds else? Like something, sounds like something he would do. Usually he gets two yellows. Um, that is true. Yep. The, did, you, did you give up? Okay. Not Fabian Char. I give you. I give you is one it? last clue, but you don't. You don't get credit for it. You ready? That's fair. Um, he played on loan this past season at Sheffield United. From his parent club, Chelsea. Um. I have no idea. It's too, it's too late. I can't rack my brain this heavily. <laughs> it's Ethan Ampadu for Wales. Ah, Ethan Ampadu. Darn. Yep. Played out, played pretty much every minute of the Premier League season. He's a household name, Zach. <laughs> is he? Is he? <laughs> he, is, he is in Wales. <laughs> in Wales and, and in Sheffield, a, a city that wants to forget everything about the Sheffield United team of the last season. He's had a wild haircut in the past, actually. He used to have dreadlocks, but then he shaved his head, so it's a little bit shorter now. A shame. He needs to go back to his dreadlockian days. Well, there you go. Um, because I think this is an appropriate way to wrap up the pod, Zach, I am going to ask you for a Welsh word of the day. See if you can go ahead and pronounce this for me. It's C O S B A U. Cosby. It's Cosby. 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 I don't like yeah. that. That, one's, that doesn't make sense to me. And it means penalties. And I am done for tonight. And there it is. All right. That is a good way to wrap this up, this meaty recap of the, the second half of Euro 2020.5, a tournament to remember for many and a tournament to forget for English people. <laughs> what a way to end it. Until next time, my friend. Until next time. Um, we actually, I remember you mentioned this before the pod, we'll be taking a little bit of a break Um on this this bi-weekly footballing discussion taking a few weeks off uh to to kind of prepare ourselves for the next the next season in the premier league and the next um i guess kind of season in the podcast we don't really do seasons um but yeah we're, we're excited to to come at you with some new content i'm thinking some new formatting kind of switch it up a bit for for next season it'll it'll be a bit different than the the 70 what 70 uh, two episodes that preceded it, so it should be it should be fun. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about a lot of the transfers that have been happening already over the summer, and I'm sure there'll be many more now that the Euros have concluded. There will be. Well, until then, footy, footy. Good night, everyone. <laughs>